Jesus defined his purpose for coming several different times. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus said that he came so that all who believed in him would have eternal life. Jesus came so that through him the world might be saved. Jesus came to give life and life more abundantly. Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for others. And Jesus came to give eternal life. Now, a common theme in these mission statements is eternal life. Often when we speak about eternal life, we narrowly focus on it as the duration of life. We will live forever. And when this is the case, eternal life is mostly focused on the future. Eternal life doesn't really kick in until we die. Though we may die physically through faith in Jesus, we will live forever. And while certainly this is a part of what is meant by eternal life, it is not all that is meant. Eternal life is not only a duration of life that will be experienced in the future, it is also a quality of life that can be experienced now. In terms of the quality of life, it is life that is imparted by God. It is transformation. Jesus called it being born again. The Apostle Paul referred to it as being regenerated. It is constant renewal, constantly being changed from glory to glory so that we are more and more like Jesus. It is the power to overcome sin so that we are no longer enslaved by our sinful nature. And then it is life and life more abundant. And all of this, it begins in this life and it carries over into the next. Eternal life is such a big deal that it is mentioned at least 17 times in John's gospel alone. Now, receiving eternal life, it is always connected to believing on Jesus. But this does beg the question, what is eternal life? What is the kind of life that we can have now that carries over into the world to come? Well, Jesus is going to give us the answer today in John chapter 17 and verse 3. So if you have a Bible, open up to John 17 and 3. That's page 825 in a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Time of the message this morning is knowing God by experience. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today with a desire to know you better. We come today with a desire, Lord, to experience the kind of life that we are meant to have in Jesus Christ. Father, we do want life and life more abundantly. Father, we do want to be transformed continually till we are more and more like Jesus. Father, we, we want to know you and we want to know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, today as we have set aside this time to worship you through the word, focus our hearts and our minds upon you. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts that would receive all that you have for us today. Let your Holy Spirit come and search our hearts and search our lives to show us, God, where we are in our relationship with you. Father, help us to, to see if we need to turn to Jesus and receive eternal life. Help us to see if we need to draw closer to Jesus and receive more of what you have for us. Help us to see if there's someone in our lives that we need to go to and talk to them about Jesus and all that he has done and all that he offers to us. Father, today we need you. 
We need you more than we need anything else. Make yourself very present in this place. Let us be very aware of the fact that you are here. We need you today, God, to save any who may be lost. We need you today, God, to restore any who may be prodigals. We need you today, God, to encourage any who may be discouraged. We need you today, God, to strengthen any who may be weak. We need you today to heal the brokenhearted. We need you today to set captives free. We need you today to open spiritually blind eyes. Father, come today and do what only you can do in our midst, that when we leave here, we would say, truly, the living God was among us. Fill me with your spirit and use me for your glory. I ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Jesus, in this passage, he defines eternal life as knowing God, the one true God, and knowing him, Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. But what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know Jesus? Well, let me start this answer by saying what it really doesn't mean. Right? Knowing God is more than an awareness of God. Awareness of God is a very basic idea that there is a God. Someone who has an awareness of God might say, I believe there is a God. Or they might even say, I believe in God. But keep in mind with statements like this, that Scripture teaches that even the demons believe and tremble at such knowledge. Belief that there is a God out there somewhere, that is a good beginning. But that is not knowing God that is eternal life. Knowing God is more than knowing information about God. We can know all kinds of information about God without actually knowing God. Now think along the lines of knowing, an, knowing about an athlete, an actor, or a musician. It is possible to know all kinds of information about them without actually knowing them. It's the same with knowing information about God or knowing information about Jesus. Jesus says on Judgment Day, He will say to some people, Depart from me, I never knew you. But scripture says that those people will be surprised to hear those words. It is possible to know information about God, even right information about God, and yet not know God Himself. So what does it mean to know God? The idea of knowing God is to have a personal relationship with God where we experience Him in our lives. It's not enough to know information about God. It's not enough to know about God. We must have a personal relationship with Him. And this involves experiencing Him in our lives. We will never be content in a relationship with God that is based only on knowing about God. We will never be content in a relationship with God that is based only on an awareness that there is a God. And we shouldn't be. We should never be content with anything less than what Scripture describes is going to be true and normal for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Scripture explains that we can and we should know God by experience. We are meant to know God by experience and we should not settle for anything less in our lives. Now, there are three aspects of knowing God by experience. Right? There is an intellectual aspect where we know something. Right? There is an operational aspect where we do something. 
And then there is an experiential aspect where we experience something. And all three are necessary for us to have the kind of relationship with God we are meant to have. One should lead to another, which would lead to another, which really kind of begins a constant cycle going on in our lives where we are constantly learning. And that is constantly inspiring action. And that is constantly leading us to have an experience of God that makes us desire to learn more, do more, experience more. Right? There should be a hunger and a desire for more of God in our lives. But not for the sake of, of the knowing and the doing are experiencing it is so that we do know God better. That we have a deeper, more fulfilling, more life-transforming relationship with Him. Now since all three of those are necessary in order to have the kind of relationship with God we're supposed to have, anytime we miss out on one or the other, we are missing out on something God intends for us to have. We are missing out on knowledge God wants us to to know. We are missing out on, on an action that God wants us to do, or we are missing out on an experience that God wants us to have. And if we focus on one at the exclusion of the others, we not only miss out, but we move into error. Right? There are intellectual errors. Right? Intellectual errors are seen when what matters most, most is what you know. As long as you know the right things and can give the right answers, Everything else will just work itself out. Now, the intellectual answer, intellectual error is seen in a couple of different ways. One is liberalism. Right? Liberalism comes when you're educated beyond your ability to take Scripture at face value. Right? Those who embrace this error, they may say things like, well, it's just not possible for someone to physically rise from the dead. Rather than a literal resurrection, the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, they teach us. That his teachings and his attitudes, they are, they are timeless. But Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. But if you look at Scripture and you begin to give reasons as to why it doesn't mean what it clearly says, you've likely moved into the intellectual area of liberalism. Another area of intellectualism is functional deism. Functional deism... The folks that have this have a, a concept of God, but they really don't believe he's active in the world today in ways that can be seen. But they may accept that God can forgive sins. There's little concept that God is able to solve problems in our lives. In this view, God can do spiritual things, but he can forgive sins. He may be able to give life after death. He, he can do things that are not actually seen in the here and the now. But he doesn't do physical things. Right? He doesn't answer prayers in tangible ways that we can see. He doesn't do things like heal the sick. He doesn't do things like deliver people from being enslaved to sin. He doesn't set captives free. He doesn't heal broken hearts. Even though Scripture clearly says God can do all of those things. Now, with functional deism, it also comes an unhealthy skepticism of the experience that others have. Right? We have such a, a skepticism that God doesn't do that, that if someone else has an experience of God, we begin to say, that's not real. That was just an emotional thing. You're making that up. It was a coincidence. You were just looking for something so that you could say 
that it was God. All kinds of things, but just it's not God who did it. If you look at Scripture and you begin to give reasons as to why God does not do the things Scripture clearly says He does, then you have likely moved into the intellectual area error of functional deism. But there are also operational errors. Operational errors are seen when what matters most is what you do. As long as you do the right things, everything else will work itself out. Different ways that it's seen. One is legalism. For those trapped in legalism, a relationship with God is bound up in what you do and what you don't do. As long as you do your do's and don't do your don'ts, well, you're good to go. Now, why do you do your do's and don't do your don'ts? It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you do them or don't do them. What do you experience as you do your do's or don't do your don'ts? doesn't matter. All that matters is that you do your do's or don't do your don'ts. Right? It's what you can do and what you can't do. That's all that matters in life. And if your relationship with God is bound up in what you can do and what you can't do, then very likely your relationship with God has slipped into the operational error of legalism. There's also liberalism with this. Think along the lines of like a, a social justice type gospel. All that matters is being kind. Or all that matters is that you're generous. Or, or all that matters is that you care for others. Why are you kind? doesn't matter as long as you're kind. Why are you generous? doesn't matter as long as you're generous. Why do you care for others? doesn't matter so long as you care for others. If faith in Jesus matters less in your relationship with God than the things you do, then you have likely moved into the operational error of liberalism. There are also experiential errors. And they are seen when what matters most is what you have experienced. Your experience is the standard. And no one, and I mean no one, has the right to question your experiences. And it's seen in several ways. One is in liberalism. Interesting how it shows up all the time. And this is often seen as people reject parts of Scripture or all of Scripture because they just can't imagine God caring about, and you just fill in the blank, but what God shouldn't care about nowadays. Now, typically, what fills in the blank is something they've experienced. So, morality has changed. So God can't care about the same sort of morality that Scripture says He cares about. Well, God is love, and so there's no way love could ever be wrong. God just wants us to be happy. Well, God and I, we have our own special deal worked out. What does Scripture say about those things? does not matter. Because what matters is my experience, my feelings. What I think is right, what makes sense to me. And all of this, all of this trumps Scripture. But if your feelings about what's right or wrong, if what makes sense to you about what's right or wrong trumps Scripture, then you have likely moved into the experiential error of liberalism. There's another error, and I don't know any other way to say it, but to call it the crazies. And the crazies 
are seen all over YouTube, unfortunately. And it's seen in the many excesses that are often attributed to the Holy Spirit, sadly. People may bark like a dog because the Holy Spirit led them to do that. They may hiss like a snake because that's how the Holy Spirit led them. They may give prophetic words or special revelations from God that contradict Scripture, but everyone has to accept because God said, brother, and you're arguing with God when you argue with me. And all of those you can't argue because that's just how the Spirit led me. And who are you to say, Holy Spirit wouldn't lead me in those ways? That's what God said. Are you arguing with God? It doesn't matter what Scripture says. Because our, our experience is the standard. And if your experiences matter more than what Scripture says, then you have likely moved into the experiential error of the crazies. Now, all three are necessary. All three have to be present to have the eternal life that is knowing God, to having the relationship with God we're supposed to have. However, knowing God must always be at the top. Knowing must always be the one that we judge the others by. Because what we do always has to be examined in light of Scripture. Why we do it always matters. Our experiences must always be judged in light of Scripture. Because what we experience may or may not really be from God. And Scripture is meant to be the standard of all of these things. Now look at what, what Paul wrote. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from all appearances of evil. Now, so notice what he talks about. First, do not quench the Spirit. Right? So don't ignore and don't reject and don't resist what the Spirit is doing or wants to do in you, through you, or for you. Okay? Do not despise prophecies. Don't despise, don't resist, don't reject messages from God and His Word. So if we're not to, to quench the Spirit, and we're not to despise the prophecies, what are we to do? Well, we are to test all things. If something is supposed to be of the Spirit, we test it against Scripture. Don't just out of hand reject it. Don't just dismiss it. Don't despise it. Test it. Is it consistent with something we find in the Word? If there's a message from the Word of God, don't resist it. Don't despise it. Don't reject it. And don't ignore it. What do you do? You test it. Is it consistent with what is revealed in the Word of God? And then after we test it, what do we do? If it's right, we embrace it. If it's wrong, we reject it. Now, here's the reason we, we often don't want to do that. This is effort. It takes effort on our part to search the Scriptures to see whether these things are true. It is far easier to say, that makes me uncomfortable, it can't be right. It's far easier to say, that contradicts what I already believe, it can't be true. It's far easier to do that. 
It's far easier to say, well, who can say what the Spirit will do? If they claim it's of the Spirit, who am I to say otherwise? It's far easier to say, well, they said it was from God, so it must be from God. We'll just embrace it. But God never calls on us to take the easy way. Deny yourself, take up your cross. That's not the standard of easiness that we're called to go on. Rather, we are to test it. Test what I'm saying. I give you, there are sermon handout notes in the bulletin so that you can take notes and search the scripture to see if what I'm saying is true. Don't take anyone's word for anything. That's how you end up in Africa drinking Kool-Aid. You test all things against the scripture. If it's true, you embrace it and you live it and you do it. If it's wrong, you reject it, no matter who says it. We are to do this because Scripture is the standard. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants us to have the kind of relationship with Him that, is, that we have and experience. We experience Him. And so He has given us His Word to test all of these things by. Doctrine is what we believe about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about life, about who God is and what God is like, what God cares about, how he may lead us. Scripture is the standard for doctrine. Scripture is for reproof. When we're wrong, Scripture shows us we're wrong. But it doesn't just leave us as wrong. It also corrects us. Here's what you believe and it's wrong. Here's what's right. Embrace this. Here's what you're doing and it's wrong. Here's what's right. Embrace this. Here's what you say you experience, but that's not of God. Do this instead. Right? It corrects us when we're wrong. It instructs us on how to live, how to believe, how to act, how to think, how to speak. So that we can be prepared to do everything. That God wants us to do. Knowing has to be at the top. Because scripture is the standard. For what we know. Scripture is the standard for what we do. And scripture is the standard for what we experience. Knowing also has to be at the top. Because God cannot be known apart from revelation. Let me show you this. From Scripture, and I'm going to give you three passages, and we don't have time to look at them in depth this morning. But write them down. Go home this week and study them out on your own. First Corinthians one and twenty-one. God has determined that people, humans through natural wisdom, will never find Him. Now Romans one tells us that just nature itself, and some of the Psalms tell us that just nature itself can give someone an awareness of God. Right? Creation declares there's a Creator. I know there are piano makers because there's a piano. I know there's a creator because I see creation. But an awareness of God is not knowing God that is eternal life. Creation will not lead us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It just reveals to us there is a God. And that should lead us deeper. Our natural wisdom, natural methods, will never 
lead us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Instead, God has chosen to reveal himself through his word. I just got an email that somebody wants to give me $14 million. This is a good Easter. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. Humans cannot and did not imagine the things that God had promised and God had planned for them. God's plans for our lives, for eternal life that is knowing Him. It's not a human thing. People didn't just go, I bet God is like this and I bet God would do that. Instead, God has revealed them to us. His Spirit revealed them to biblical authors who revealed them to us and we have that now. And then this one is just probably a pretty familiar passage where Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Well, naturally, in their own human wisdom, people said, well, you're John the Baptist, or you're one of the prophets, or something along those lines. Well, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Anybody remember how Peter answered, how Jesus responded? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Human reasoning does not lead us to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. It has to come through revelation of God. All true knowledge of who God is and what God is like comes as a result of God revealing Himself to us. And any time God reveals Himself to us as something, it is because He expects us to experience Him in that way. God reveals us to reveals Himself to us as Savior. Why? Because He intends to save us. God reveals Himself to us as Father. Why? Because He intends to adopt us. But revelation by God should always lead to an experience of God. Right? And that is the, the key truth for this message and for the whole series that we're going to be in for the next several weeks. Revelation by God should always lead us to an experience of God. However God reveals Himself to us, He intends for us to experience Him in that way. Now faith, faith is the connector from knowing and doing and experiencing. It is faith that enables me to believe what I've learned so that I act upon it. It is faith that enables me to interpret what I experience in light of what I've learned and what I've done. Faith allows me to properly understand what's going on in my life. Right? Let me show you this in, in several ways. One, here's a biblical example. Jesus prays in the Gospel of John, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came saying, I have glorified and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by heard it, Heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Now notice, this is cool. Jesus prays out loud for the Father to hear him. And God speaks over the land. And everyone hears it. Everyone hears God's thundering voice. But not everyone recognizes that it's God. Some people heard the thundering voice and they said, What a strange time for thunder to appear. Other people heard the thundering voice and they said, that was an angel. Jesus heard the voice and he said, it is my father. What makes the difference? 
Why did some hear the Father, some hear angels, and some hear thunder? What they heard was dependent upon the condition of their hearts and the faith that they had. Some probably were functional deists. They had a naturalistic faith. God doesn't speak. Therefore, that must have been thunder. Some believed various myths and false doctrines. And so it wasn't God the Father speaking. Instead, it must have been an angel. What they heard was dependent on what they believed and on the condition of their hearts. It is possible for every person to see the same thing and yet interpret it as something different simply because of the condition of their heart and the kind of faith that they have. Some personal experiences in our own life with this. Most of you know that when Lizzie was born, she spent two months uh, in the NICU before she came home. And each day in the NICU was filled with all kinds of unknowns. We didn't know uh, when she was going home. The doctors didn't know any more than we did. And man, to be honest, we, we didn't even know if we would get to bring her home. And then one day before going to the NICU, I was reading in my Bible. And I was reading in, in Mark's Gospel. And it was where Jairus was seeking Jesus to come and heal his daughter who was dying. And as Jesus was dealing with another issue... People brought word to Jairus and they said, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter is dead. And Jesus looked at Jairus. And in the Bible I was reading at that time, Jesus said, it said, Jesus ignored their reports and said, do not be afraid. Just trust me. Well, that day we went to see Lizzie and the neurologist met with us and she told us that Lizzie had a, a debilitating disease. And that we would watch her die over the next three to five years. They told us that we would watch as her muscles stopped working. And she would either suffocate for lack of strength to breathe on her own. Or her heart would just stop. But either way, within the next three to five years, she would be dead. She told us this like you would tell someone, like a waitress would tell someone, we're out of hamburger meat, what else would you like? She told us that she turned and she walked out and let us standing there open mouth trying to process the information. But we stood there for just a few minutes trying not to have a runaway. I remembered the words I had read that day. And I turned to Kelly and I said, Jesus ignored their reports. And he said, do not be afraid. Just trust me. For the next two months, we lived by that verse. Day after day, they came in and told us the various terrible ways our daughter was going to die. Weeks, months, few years. And every time, we would look at each other and we would say, Jesus ignored their reports. And he said, do not be afraid, just trust me. Now, some would say that my reading that verse just before we had a, a bad diagnosis, that was, just, that was just a coincidence. What a lucky break you had that day. But we knew different. We knew that it was our God. That He was active. That He was involved. And He knew about what was going on. And He cared about our situation. Cultural conditioning saw a coincidence. Faith saw God. Another time, a few years ago, Caitlin lost her cell phone. It had been gone, lost for nine months. And we were joking about it at church after a Sunday morning service one day. And, and Jones said, 
Have you prayed for God to find it for you? No, we hadn't prayed for God to find our cell phone. We had yelled at Caitlin for losing it. We hadn't thought to pray for it. And so we went home that day and we did. As a family, we sat down and we prayed, Lord, let us find the cell phone today. And it snowed that day. So I went to get my winter boots out so that we could go to the park and make footprints in the snow. And as I put my foot in the right boot, there was something in there. Lo and behold, it was Caitlin's cell phone. It had been gone for nine months. Now, cultural conditioning would say it was just a coincidence that it happened to snow and I happened to get those boots on the day that I prayed. But faith sees God and not a coincidence. And I use those two stories intentionally because one is very serious and the other is not. Yet in both, we find that if we follow our cultural conditioning, we will always find reasons why God is not active. We will always find reasons why it is a coincidence instead of God. But in faith, we see God active and a part of all of our lives. We see that God is active, not just in the big things of life, but also in the small things of life. A part of knowing God by experience is being aware of Him when things are huge and when things are so very minor. When we know God by experience, we will be able to recognize God whenever He shows up and in whatever He does when He shows up. Now, all of us, as disciples of Jesus, are meant to know God by experience. Revelation by God should always lead us to an experience of God. And yet I am afraid that many in our day miss knowing God in this way. A few years ago, or a few months ago, I read an article that drove this home to me. It was a pastor whose blog I read on a regular basis and in his blog, he was talking about some podcasts that he had recently listened to of former believers. These were people that, who at one point in their life had believed in Jesus and been active in church, but now they had abandoned the faith altogether. It's not just that they, they weren't in church anymore, but they, they didn't believe in Jesus anymore. They had become atheists. And he was listening to them to find out what had led to this great change in their life because he wanted to learn from them so that he could deal with that with the people in his congregation. And he was expecting really deep answers, really deep problems, really deep issues. Instead, for many of the people, he said the reason they left the faith was Christian cliches. Christian cliches are things like let go and, and let God. Well, God never gives you more than you can bear. Stuff like that. Now, the Christian cliches, they weren't the total reason that the people had abandoned Christianity, but they factored in as a reason that they gave. And the article left me somewhat dumbfounded. I mean, how can someone else's cliches cause you to stop believing in someone you know? I mean, how does that happen? I mean, there, you think about marriage. There are all kinds of cheesy cliches about marriage, right? She completes me. Right? Oh, she's my soulmate. Happy wife, happy life. Okay, that one's real. <laughs> There are so many cheesy cliches. Can you imagine a, a situation in which I've read so many cliches? I'm like, that's it. I don't believe in Kelly anymore. I don't think she's real. 
How can cheesy cliches stop you from believing in someone that you know at a real and a personal level? You can't. The problem isn't Christian cliches, no matter how cheesy they are. The problem is people are never getting to the place where they know God by experience. Because when you know God by experience, nothing can talk you out of that. Hardships and trials and cliches and Christians who do bad things and stupid things. There are all kinds of things I see Christians do that I'm horrified by. There are all kinds of questions I have in my own life, things I don't understand. But I don't just believe in God, I know Him. I don't just have an awareness about Him or know certain facts. I, I have experienced Him at work in my life and nothing can talk me out of that. And I'm afraid many miss out on that. There is more available to us than an intellectual knowledge of God. There's more than facts and doctrines and right answers to theology questions. There's more than the stuff that you do. Your relationship with God is more than what you can do and what you can't do. And there's even more to it than subjective experiences that may or may not be from God. There is a personal relationship where you know Him and He knows you. Paul talks to the Galatians, and as they are considering abandoning Jesus for Judaism, he asks them, I am amazed that you are so soon being carried away after you know God, or rather, you are known by Him. And the picture there is not just that, that we know God, but that God knows us. Now think, think back to the, what I mentioned about famous people. Have you ever met a famous person in real life? Maybe you got their autograph or you were at the same place they were and you got your picture taken with them. Now if you ever saw them again, what are the chances that they're going to remember you? Do, you may know them, you've met them, but do they know you? Paul's point in, in, to the Galatians is, you know God and God knows you, both on a personal experiential level. How can you be drawn away from that? That is what we all need to move to. We need to move beyond facts and information. We need to move beyond the do's and the don'ts. We even need to move beyond the emotional experiences, till they are all three meshed together in a genuine relationship with God. And I can see, because of my faith, that what I know has caused what I experience. And that what I experience motivates me to do what I know. We are meant to know God in that way. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. Right? We're going to talk about experiencing next week the forgiveness of God. And you may say, well, that's what you talked about, about an eternal or a spiritual thing, but not a physical. But do you know that in that passage, Peter talks about being forgiven by God, and then he gives an experience that comes. Times of refreshing that come from the Lord. That's a physical experience of God having forgiven our sins. Or experiencing the freedom of God. Right? God not only forgives our sins, but He frees us from the power of sin. 
We are not meant to be enslaved to our sinful nature and our sinful desires any longer. The Bible says we are free from that. It's an experience. The peace of God. Now, the peace of God it is not that there are no troubles and there are no conflicts. It's in the midst of the troubles and the conflicts that there is a peace that guards our heart through Christ Jesus. The hope of God. Again, that's not that everything is wonderful. But that we can be filled with all joy and peace and believing and we can abound with hope through the Holy Spirit. It's an experience. And the voice of God. Job says, God speaks in a variety of ways, though man does not perceive it. The God who spoke still speaks. The problem isn't that God has lost his voice is that we have ceased to be able to understand it. In each of these passages, we will learn something. What we learn will lead us to do something, and what we do will enable us to experience something that we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that is our God. That will create in us a hunger to learn more, to do more, and to experience more. It'll cause us to have a deeper, fuller, more personal relationship with God than we likely ever thought possible. But all of this, it rises and falls on our connection with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus is only found as we receive Him and receive the salvation that He came to provide. And knowing that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. An eternal life rises and falls in our connection to Jesus Christ. It demands a response from us. Scripture describes three responses that this revelation demands. One is to repent. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. First, it is a change of mind about God. It means that God is right and we are wrong. That's the first change that has to happen. For many of us, we've concluded that we are right. God is wrong about whatever. There has to be a change of mind about that that says, you know what? God's right and I'm wrong. But primarily it would deal with sin. God's standards are right. My rejection of His standards is wrong. And this results in a change of life. If I know I'm wrong, I can't keep living that way any longer. I have to, to turn to God from my sins. Lord, you're right. I've been wrong all this time. I'm turning to you and I'm surrendering to what you say is right. It also requires me to believe. To believe not just that there is a God out there somewhere, but to believe specifically in Jesus. To believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That His death and His resurrection, that is the only hope you have. That you'll not be saved because you're a good person. That you'll not be saved because you're a good spouse. That you'll not be saved because you've basically lived a moral life. That you'll be saved because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Now that requires us to let go of our self-righteousness and our self-justification and cling to the cross. It is impossible to cling to the cross of Christ for salvation and hold on to self-righteousness at the same time. I have to let go of one 
to grab on to the other. Faith is letting go of my self-righteousness and grabbing on to the cross as my source of salvation. But then I have to call on Jesus. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but you have to call upon the name of the Lord. Salvation is available to all, but not everyone receives it. Only those who call upon Jesus will be saved. That is a personal decision. No one can call on Jesus on your behalf. No one can cry out to God to save you and you be saved apart from you. You must call on the Lord. It is your decision and your decision alone. All that we've talked about today and far more, it is available to everyone who will repent, who will believe, and who will call upon Jesus. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.